Welcome to Turnbenders, the sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, is Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, how you doing? Doing great. We're going to do a whole bunch of listener comments and listener feedback stuff today. You can find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado, and Tim is at Azimuth Audio. Let's get started. Okay, first up, we have a message from David Topple. He says, hi, Tone Benders. Just a quick message from Exeter in southwest England to say that in the last day or so, I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts and episode 11, which featured live sound design. That's a brilliant idea for podcasts. I found it fascinating to get insight into your workflow. Thanks for all the useful information and keep it up. Thanks, David. Uh, We have some plans for some more sound design live on the show. So hopefully we can keep that up for you. Renee, do you have anything in the pipes for that? There's probably a thing or two that we can do, probably something a little more organic and less synth-based. It's it's funny how personally stressful those are when you're exposing your whole workflow to a bunch of peers that understand what they're listening to. But that episode has gotten the most positive feedback of anything we've done, so we're definitely going to do more. Yeah, I've got one coming down the pipe too. So it's just a matter, we actually recently have done a lot of uh, interviews and such so we have a bunch of stuff lined up so it's just a matter of finding the right episode to fit it in with but it will be coming your way so thanks for that question david next up we have robert garvin i recently started listening to the podcast and just came across episode four on your website i found the episode after searching getting started tips on soundminer and came across this article a gear sluts link which you can find on our site renee posted the link to the podcast there and that's how i found it Basically, to wrap things up, I'm looking for a short tutorial on tips of getting the most out of SoundMiner in the 30-day trial period. I need to get my sound effects library organized, but I'm not sure where to start with SoundMiner. About half my library is original, unedited, raw sound effects, but it'd be nice to have access to them until I get around to editing them. So I suspect something with databasing is needed here. Ultimately, I just need to know what to expect upon first opening SoundMiner and how to take my growing sound library from folders to the database. If all goes well, and I really want it to, I'll be purchasing SoundMiner at the end of the trial run. Thanks, guys. I think really what you got to do is just dig into it. One thing that's pretty good about SoundMiner is the help document. It's really well written and understandable. I'd say just open it up and dig in. Yeah, I would also take a listen to the episode that we did with Paul Verostek and go check out some of his eBooks on how to deal with metadata and, and, and approach metadata in a structured way. Um, that'd be really good. The other thing that I would do before you dive too deep into your metadata is at least get further down, do some broad stroke rough edits. The metadata that you write is going to end up getting burned into your files. And so you're going to want your files in at least at, at least some sort of good shape before you start really burning your metadata into it. So, you know, even a, another step or two worth of editorial, even if you don't finish your cleanup, I think is going to be way worth it in the long run because what will happen is if you... If you just have big, long files and you chuck a bunch of metadata on them and then you chop them up later, well, then your metadata is all null and void at that point. So do a quick chop first and then do your metadata and then you'll be good. It's a great program, though, and you can use it at one level of if you just buy libraries and put it in, it's quite simple. But the more librarian work you want to do, the more complicated it gets. So you just want to take your time, get to know it learn it, and then you do it right, because you don't want to be adding bad metadata, because it's just going to cause headaches in the long run. Just a quick technical note on the SoundMiner thing. Uh, SoundMiner version 4 Pro is the only one that really does metadata editing. 
All the others are basically metadata readers and playback versions. So if you're going to do the editing, you have to use version 4. Exactly. Okay, the next one up is from Ed Russo. Hi, Tone Benders. First off, I have to tell you I'm loving the podcast. As a student and aspiring sound designer, it inspires me to go out and make my own recordings every time I listen to it, and the information I've got listening on my career as well as sound design and recording techniques is so important that it should be compulsory listening for anyone in a sound design course. I joined the SCC because of you guys and have been having lots of fun recording as much as I can in my surrounding area, though I think my housemates have been slightly unimpressed by me calling for silence and muting the TV during their favorite shows. I have a question. What samplers plugins do you guys use for speed and pitch manipulation of a sample in real time that you can also automate? I mean so that you can smoothly change the pitch of a sample while it is playing to create such sounds as engines starting up, dopplers, and other crazy effects. I imagine Kima can do some wild stuff, but this is something I'd ideally like to do within Pro Tools. Anyways, thanks again for the podcast, and please don't ever stop making them. So that was Ed Rousseau. So, Renee, what do you use for that stuff? Well, I mean, the most straightforward answer is to use a sampler. So you can just take the sounds and chuck them into contact and map it across. You know, if you have a single sound, you chuck it into contact in a new patch, map it across a bunch of keys, and then it's auto uh, uh, resampled across the different keys, and you also have a pitch wheel there, so you can do it that way. Another thing that you could do, which is uh, something Carl Anderson talked to me about after we recorded the podcast with him, um, is just to use SoundMiner to do it. So, you know, basically you, you put a track into record, put your files up in SoundMiner and play them and record your, your Mac output digitally back into Pro Tools and then just mess with the pitch slider inside of SoundMiner. And that's a very, very smooth sounding pitch move there. So that's, those, those are two ways to go about it. Yeah, Dustin's not here today, so he can't really comment on the Kima part of the question. Uh, I've never lit up a Kima, so I, I can't comment on that either. But one thing, if you're doing Dopplers, the Waves Doppler is a great plugin to uh, use for that. I certainly put, put that through its paces quite regularly. Yep, for sure. Now, the, the one limitation of the Waves Doppler is that it only goes up to 48K. So if you're working in 96K, then, then you have to use a different solution. Do you do a lot of edit sessions in 96? Not a lot, not a lot. Well, I mean, sometimes when I'm designing my big impact e hits kind of things, I like to do those in 96K because they tend to get pitched around a lot. And actually, there's a workaround with regards to the Waves Doppler where you can use it as a VST plugin inside of SoundMiner and then roll a 96K sample into a 96K session that way, and it'll process it that way correctly, and you'll, you'll get your Waves Doppler, and you'll still retain your 96K frequency content. So the VST will run 96K. Yeah. It just won't do it as a plugin inside of Pro Tools, but it'll do it as a VST. I don't know why. I don't know what the difference is. Just to mess with us. Melted Sound's Whoosh plugin and also um, Sound Morph's Wave Warper, both of those have really good Dopplers in there. Sound Morph's is a little bit more um, controllable in real time with your hands, and so that's a, that's a good way to do it also. Cool. Okay, next up we have an email from Timothy Ornelas. Hello, Dustin, Renee, and Timothy. First off, thank you guys for taking the time to share stories, experience, and techniques with everyone. The quality of your podcasts are always awesome. I shared your podcast with other students and teachers at a recording school I was attending, and this led to some great in-class discussions and some spontaneous lesson plans, especially episode 8, which included the different mic setups. I am now currently on the hunt for an internship. Do you guys have any advice for someone who wants to get an intern position at a post house? Do you think the reels and resumes play a big part, as people say, in the selection process? Are there any underrated skills someone should have beforehand? For example, data management, metadata tagging, specific session setups, coffee brewing skills. Thank you, Tone Benders. I look forward to hearing your next episode. 
So yeah, Timothy actually emailed me with the story of, of him sharing the podcast to his classmates over at LA Film School. And it was really, really cool for me to hear because I'm, I'm a big fan of academia and, and of, of learning in a, in a proper scholastic environment. And to, to have this podcast go out into the film school was really, really cool for me personally. Um, so thanks, Tim, for sharing that with, with your classmates over there. With regards to internships, yeah, I think your reel is going to be super important. And the reason I think your reel is going to be super important is because if you go find an internship where your reel isn't important, then you're not going to get a whole heck of a lot out of the internship, in my opinion. I don't think internships should be 100% coffee brewing and, and running. I think internships should allow you some time to talk with engineers and to put your hands on low-level projects and to be overseen by people. You know, It should be as close to an apprenticeship as you can find. Not all internships are like that. And not all internships are worth your time, but the ones that are worth your time and the one, the ones that are um, are going to advance you and, and going to give you a real shot at something are going to be the ones that will require you to show your work, show some abilities, show that you're you're already up and running. Because those type of internships won't want to train you from scratch of not knowing anything. That's my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Uh, a couple of things I'd like to add. A lot of people worry that the stuff on their reel isn't the greatest thing ever. When I find I'm looking for internships, I'm not necessarily looking for someone who's already got every skill in the world, but I want someone who's got their, their shit together enough that they have put together a reel. Like just the going through the process of putting together a reel shows initiative. For sure. It also shows that you're excited enough to put in your end of the bargain. And also when you're looking for an internship, it's a two-way street. So when you're doing interviews with prospective studios, make sure that they say something along the lines of what they want to give back to you because as much as you will end up making coffee and doing data management in the background and not necessarily always interacting with their number one clients, you should be getting something back from it. It's not just a slave relationship where you do all the bad stuff that they don't want to do anymore. So I found that what I try to do when I'm dealing with interns is make sure they know what's expected of them and what I want to give to them and what they should be leaving the internship with, what they, I would hope they have learned and new skills that they will acquire. Yep. Yeah, if someone just is like, yeah, do you know how to make coffee? That's not going to be a great situation, as Renee said. And it's tough, too, because uh, you know, the vast majority of internships are unpaid or paid very little. And you have to still go to work full time. And so a lot of people just don't have the financial means to go do a really good internship. And so I think it's very important as you're applying for internships, if you do get accepted, you still need to evaluate it and make sure that it's worth your time. Because, you know, like I said, the quality of the internship programs varies as much as the quality of the interns themselves. So if you are a good audio engineer, if you're a good audio person, go find yourself a good internship and make sure that you invest your time wisely. There's actually a really great post. It was a gentleman who was hiring for the first time for a game audio job. I'll put a link on the website, and he went through all the things that people had said in the interviews that were really shocking to him. So it's like a do-not-do list. It's a really good read, so we'll put that link up on the website for everyone to check out. We tweeted it out recently at the Tonebenders uh, Twitter account. I think I missed it. Like, what was on the list? The specific job was for game audio for casino games. Right. And just how many people mentioned that this was just a stepping stone job, that they just wanted to use this to get in the business so they could go on to something better. Insulting the person that's interviewing you 
won't get you very far. <laughs> just uh, simple things like that. That he, like this guy, was interviewing all very junior people. Like this was their first gig out of school. Yeah, and he was just shocked at some of the. It's almost manners that people were displaying, but uh, it's definitely worth the read. Yeah, human interaction skills are uh, rarer and rarer these days. <laughs> yes, exactly. Next up, we have a question from Per Anders Osblad from Sweden. He says, hey, Tone Benders, I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I thought it was really interesting what you did with the microphone comparisons in episode 17. Even though the SM57 could be EQ'd to sound as good as it did, I think it is worth to add from a sound design perspective that when you use digital EQ to compensate frequencies, you always get a level of quantization. It might not matter in the first edit, but when you resample it or bounce it a couple of times and compress it, it will accumulate in quantization with every edit and possibly enhance the bad resonance you get from the quantization. Just the thought that it could be worth a mention as the test came out from a social sound design question of why not EQ a cheap mic to sound like an expensive one? Keep up the awesome podcasting. You really make a difference in our wonderful community. Best regards. Um, I guess to some degree, though, you could make that argument about using EQ for any purpose at all. Um, and so, I don't know. I don't, I don't really sit in my daily workflow and stress about EQ quantization, honestly. Um, I, I think a lot of the caveats that we did throw out there, the fact that the slew rate isn't going to change with your EQ, the fact that they're going to react, um, uh, certain mics will react more quickly and more slowly is going to be your primary difference and also your polar patterns and your proximity effects are going to be your bigger differences, I think. And I still think you should you know, choose the right mic for the job and not mess with it because the practicality of messing with it is, uh, is very low. Yeah, it was a great kind of studio experiment, but I don't know how great it is in the real world. Yeah, Stephen Slate came out with a whole microphone system that's got a set of mics that are as flat as he could make them that are running in through emulation software to where you can emulate other mics. It's, it's a pretty good idea, I think, especially given the, the results of the tests. It'll probably be a little pricey, but, you know... Uh, it's it's not a bad not a bad way to approach something like that if you do it as a whole include system including the actual microphones but i thought that the the test that we did with the eq definitely worked as a proof of concept of something that he could put together with that system at least it gives me it gives me a feeling that a system like that could certainly be viable so next question is from Kyle Evans in Australia. He writes, Hi there, I'm a big fan of the Tonebenders podcast. I recently made my first foray into creating a sound effects library on my own, and I actually discovered it's kind of laborious, data-intensive work that just wasn't my cup of tea. It'll likely be my first and only attempt at a library, so rather than letting it just sit on my hard drive, I've decided to share it around with people in the sound community who I appreciate. If you have any use for 1.6 gigabyte of chain sounds, from small light chains through heavy rusty chains, then you are most welcome to use it. You are also welcome to pass this library on to your friends and colleagues who might find this useful. So I contacted Kyle and asked him if he minded us sending it out on this podcast for everyone to get, and he was very uh, into that. So if you go to www.squeakyfish.com.au backslash chains backslash, that'll be on our website, the Tonebenders website for this episode. You can go and download a whole bunch of chain sounds for free. So thanks, Kyle. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. You should also go check out Kyle's website, which is uh, squeakyfish.com.au. It's a cool website. He's uh, doing a lot of cool stuff. I think he's in Melbourne. So, Kyle, that is awesome. So everybody go get that, make use, and shoot him an email through his website if you use the chains for something. Show him some love. He brings up something interesting, too, in that it's not so easy, even with a simple concept like chains, to 
put together a high quality library and get it out there and get it metadata tagged and all of that. It is very labor intensive. It's very data intensive, and you have to love it because you won't earn enough money from it for it to be worth it otherwise. <laughs> but I love it. Yeah, the, it's your thing. It's not his thing. Yeah. Okay, our last one is from Joseph Belliston, and he writes, Hi, guys. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work. I'm working on a show with a host that drives around on a Harley, and I'm having a hard time finding a lot of good Harley sound effects. Do you guys know of any libraries with the good Harley Davidson sound effects? Thanks a lot, Joe. I actually was shocked when I started racking my brain and couldn't think of a dedicated Harley Davidson library. So I put out a call on Twitter to see if anybody knew of one. I know of Sound Ideas 5000 series, their uh, Wheels series. Disc 23 has a bunch of Harley sounds. But when I tweeted it out, Paul Verostek, who is a former guest and friend of the show, he let us know that Blastwave has some on their transportation disc. So if anyone else knows of a more dedicated Harley library, I talked to Joseph via email and he said that like it has to be Harley sounds or close-up of the Harley engines and stuff. He can't be faking in other motorcycle sounds with it. So if anybody knows of a kind of dedicated Harley library, let us know. Or maybe that's a gap in the market that someone should jump on and get a dedicated Harley library out there. You know, a few years ago, actually it's more than a few at this point, many years ago, we were um, doing sound effects for a Harley video game. It was like a, it was a toy for Radica that was like a set of Harley handlebars and you would sit there and, and crank the, the throttle and the brakes and you would just drive around on this little toy with a little LCD screen. We had to go out and record a bunch of Harley sounds for that. And we found it was actually really challenging because you can't just roll to the local biker bar and get the right Harley. Because what happens with dudes with Harleys is they will typically buy them and immediately, and sometimes before they even take them home, change the exhaust, right? So they don't run with the stock exhaust. They get the big shots and the other kind of big, throaty, louder exhausts. That's just kind of what... A lot of cruising, you know, bikers do. And, you know, I had my Honda that I chucked some big shots on too. And so that's just kind of what people do. A lot of people don't like rolling with the stock exhaust. But when you're dealing with a Harley licensed product, Harley tunes their stock exhaust to sound like a Harley. And so you have to use an actual stock Harley. And there's just so few of them out there that it's a real challenge to get access to one or a couple to get enough coverage. Yeah, I never thought about that. You ride a bike, right? Well, I've sold it uh, probably last year or year before. But yeah, I had a Honda VTX 1300 for a long time, and I loved that thing. It was great. You have to be real careful with your ears on those things. Uh, not because of the, the loudness, but because of the wind. I can imagine. So yeah, you always have to wear earplugs if you're on a bike. Yeah. So thanks for Paul Verostek for uh, helping us out with that on Twitter. Paul's been real active lately, um, doing some other stuff for the community. There was a Kickstarter that came up recently. It was the uh, free firearms sound effects library that came out. And I backed it and a bunch of other people backed it. I backed it. Their idea was, hey, we're going to put a super low backing number on this as far as like what you have to contribute to get access to it. And then they set a pretty high target with regards to the amount of money they needed to raise for ammo and everything else. And they managed to hit it at the, at the 11th hour, which was really cool of them. The library just came out very recently, all of the edits. And one of the issues with the library was the fact that the files were named A underscore 1, A underscore 2. The file names were not descriptive at all. And the metadata you know, had something to be lacking, too. The team of people that did this, it was their first project, I think, on this scale. And so what Paul Verostek, who also backed it, did was... 
as soon as it came out, he jumped into his laboratory and redid all the metadata and came up with a huge badass blog post of how to use SoundMiner and also Basehead to rename the files into something usable and update all the metadata and do it in a couple of quick steps. And um, it was probably a lot of work for him to get done. And it helped the community and it helped that project out dramatically. That library is available for free for anyone that wants to go pull it down. And actually sounds really good. It's suppressed weapon fire, so it doesn't have the, the big blasty sounds. But it's definitely an interesting take on a lot of weapon fire. And, uh, and if you do pull it down, you, it's basically mandatory. You have to go to Paul's site and fix the metadata um, if you want to use it. Another cool connection between that library and this podcast is they heard our episode 8 with Michael Raphael where we talked about recording in winter. And those guys, I believe, are in Michigan and they recorded it in January outdoors. So uh, they contacted me to ask me a bunch of questions about the best ways to keep the gear warm and such during the recording. So hopefully our advice worked. So the website where you can go get the sound effects library is firearmsfx.moonfruit.com. So jump over there and pull it down if you need any suppressed weapons. And they actually did a lot of really good sounding foley too. So roll over there and pull it down and then jump over to creativesounddesign.com and check out Paul's blog post on how to deal with the metadata. We'll throw links up on our site for this episode as well so you can find it all there. Also, if you're sending in an email or Twitter or anything to us, let us know how to pronounce your name and where you're from, because I'm just murdering people's names in the readers' comments sections, and it's just embarrassing. Unless it's uh, terribly obvious. Kyle Evans, I figured out how to say his name right away, but a couple other ones were a little tricky. And also, it's great to know where, where you're writing from, so let us know where in the world you are. Okay, so sadly I have to run now, so Renee is going to go solo for the last half of this episode. Continuing with the theme of listeners' questions, this next interview came about from an email we received from Wilm, one of our listeners in Belgium. He heard our interview with Gordon Hempton in episode 16, and he wanted to tell us about a homemade binaural dummy head that he made. Renee and Willem got going back and forth, and we wanted to have Willem on to talk about his recordings. Due to the language barriers and time zone scheduling problems, we had to send Willem a list of questions, and he recorded his answers and then sent them back to us. So I'm leaving you now. Until next time, everyone. Uh, take it away, Renee. So I was recently contacted by one of our listeners. His name is Willem Sannon. And he was really interested in what I was planning on testing with regards to Omni mics for recording ambiences and doing Jekylls and that type of thing. He sent me some emails and some, some pictures of a really kick-ass dummy head that he built for cheap um, to do Omni binaural recordings. You know, similar to what Gordon Hempton was doing with his Neumann head. Obviously, this is a little more DIY, a little more entry-level but the results ended up being really good. So we emailed back and forth, and I said, hey, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you've been doing with Omni Mics because you're a little deeper into it than I am at this point. So let's do a little Q&A and, and figure out exactly where we're at here. So here's a little Q&A that Willem and I did. The first thing I asked him was to tell me a little about, about himself as a recordist and what his background is. Here's what Willem had to say. Well, uh, hello, Renee. Uh, to tell first a little bit about myself, I am Willem Sonnen. I live in Brussels in Belgium. I'm quite involved in sound in different contexts. I studied arts and culture. Um, I wrote a thesis about David Cronenberg, where you could say that I learned the trait of being a sound designer is actually by working closely together with a visual artist. 
um, Wilfried Pulings, actually a good friend of mine now. So I had to provide sounds for his videos and uh, it, it quickly became clear that uh, playing music on top of those videos was a little bit too explaining and defining the mood of the viewer. So I really worked hard on finding the right sounds, more abstract sounds that would go a lot better with abstract images. It's two years ago actually that I changed from a sound designer or a strict sound designer to a field recordist. I knew a little bit that I lacked something, so I thought I need to develop that a little bit. So I bought some gear and I went out and recorded sounds. That's really cool. That's a, that's a step that all sound designers end up taking, in my opinion, is you know you start out with a bucket of sounds that someone hands you or that you buy, um, and then when you when you start getting deeper into it, you always have to take the step to go out and start recording your own stuff. I think the sooner people realize that and the sooner they get started going out into the world, the better with regards to advancing themselves as sound designers. You've done a lot of test recordings with Omni mics. What are you liking about Omnis and what kind of problems are you running into? There are two experiences that I had that made me think of using omnidirectional microphones. The first thing was that last year, I recorded the business district in Brussels. Um, it's a place where I currently live and it's a place where not a lot of people live. You have mostly uh, offices here, uh, very high buildings and a lot of commuters every day. People getting off their trains, going to their office, uh, going back home, um, taking subways. Uh, post offices, shopping malls, um, big train station. So you have really crowds of people every day passing by. And I wanted to record that atmosphere. And uh, I used my Rode NT4 microphone, which is a microphone which has two cardioid capsules in a 90 degree angle. I found it great to record those uh, ambiences. But it wasn't quite satisfying uh, in the sense that it was great if people passed by, um, but it was difficult actually to find a big, a good perspective when I recorded uh, inside, for example, a train station in the big hall where uh, people come from everywhere, where you have sounds that, can, that are coming from all directions. I wasn't never quite sure where I would put that microphone to capture the whole atmosphere of the for example that uh, train station hall so here's a little playback of a sound that he gave me this is the brussels business district on the inside recorded with his road nt4 stereo xy and to me that sounds like a lot of handheld recorder type uh, situations where you have fixed mics in it. Um, obviously the NT4 is not a handheld recorder, but it's a similar mic setup. Um, and, I, and I do understand what he's talking about. You know, it's when you do an XY setup, you're recording what's in front of the mic array. You're not recording the entire space. And so mic position does kind of come into play. Um, things get, things, things come on access, things go off access, and it's, it's a whole different vibe there. 
than when you're doing omnis. So the whole sound field, I think, was frustrating to Willem in that his ears were hearing more than his mics were recording. There was a musician, he listened to my recordings, and he remarked that it made him think of Koyani's Katsi. It's uh, probably a movie that you know, a movie from the 80s with uh, music from Philip Glass. Uh, I think the music is more famous than the movie, maybe. Um, and it's a movie where you have a very broad perspective on daily life of people. Uh, you see people rushing to their jobs, uh, taking their cars. But it's a very anonymous perspective and it's a little bit like, like if God is looking onto the earth. And um, I think that remark of that musician was quite right that uh, I tried to find more or less the same perspective onto the Brussels business district. So the, the second um, experience that I had that made me think of using omnidirectional microphones uh, was uh, an opportunity that I had um, in the Isle of Sardinia. It's an isle, a part of Italy in the Mediterranean. Um, and I had there the time of my life as a field recordist because I had a whole afternoon to record the sea in ideal circumstances. The weather was fine, the wind was coming from the right direction. I had all my equipment with me and I recorded very uh, extensively the sea there. I took different microphone perspectives, uh, placed the microphone in different positions. came back home and I was quite happy with my recordings until I heard a recording by Chris Watson who is um, uh, here in Europe quite a famous um, sound recordist uh, well known for his work for BBC nature documentaries and he made a similar recording of a sea like me but it was so much better recorded and I wondered what did he do better than me um, was this just having access to much better microphones than me, much more expensive microphones? Or what, did he have a skill that I didn't know of, a way of uh, finding a better perspective um, to record that sea? And, um, well, I didn't know, but luckily afterwards I heard an interview with Chris Watson on the Danish radio, and I heard that he talked about his love for his DPA 4060 microphones, which are very tiny omnidirectional microphones. They're actually designed to put on people clo people's clothes to uh, record what they're saying. And they pick up sound from all directions. And I figured uh, out that probably Chris Watson used those same omnidirectional microphones to record his C and he gets so much better results with them, so I must have a pair of DPA 4060s. Another kind of high-profile usage of those exact mics in that exact situation is Tim Preble's recent library of coastal surf and waves. He did multiple mic setups, but one of the mic setups was a set of DPAs that he used as a wide perspective. If you jump to uh, hissandaurora.com and check out the Big Surf Library, you can hear 
what the DPAs sound like in comparison to what Willem recorded with his NT4s. This is not to bash on the NT4s. I mean, the NT4 is a good mic and it makes really good recordings. But I completely agree with the idea that when you're dealing with ambiences, um, bigger, broader, wider equals better in a general sense to me. Here's a little more of what Willem had to say. For me, the big advantage of using omnidirectional microphones is their quality. Um, they are very natural sounding. I found their low end and their high end also much better than uh, I was used with other pencil cardioid microphones. Uh, somebody told me that it probably has to do with the fact that every microphone capsule is exactly omnidirectional, but gets uh, constructed in a way that it becomes uh, cardioid or um, hypercardioid. If you don't do that, you have a better frequency response in a natural way. So I found that a big advantage, that flat frequency response. Personally, I find it a more honest way with recording my subject because I take the location better into account or the place that I am recording. There is no isolation, no extra directionality. And I often found that extra directionality uh, not that satisfying. Um, for me personally, it tends to be more of a disadvantage than it is an advantage, uh, especially with shotgun microphones. Okay, there are circumstances when they are quite handy, but as an all-round microphone, I don't find them that ideal. I prefer my omnidirectional microphones. He brings a couple of good points up about the way that microphones in general are constructed. All microphone capsules are, in fact, omnis inherently. If you look at any cardioid condenser, what you're going to see is a bunch of vents in the side of the mic wrapped around the capsule. And what those vents do is they displace via phase displacement the sounds that are coming from the side of the mic. And that's how they achieve their directionality is the sounds that show up from the side basically get delayed slightly to where they're out of phase. So any mic that's not an omni mic is going to have some acoustic phase cancellation built into the design of it. And that's especially true of shotguns. When you look at long shotguns like the MKH-70 or any shotgun, there's a long tube at the front of it, and the capsule is not at the front end of that tube. The capsule is actually at the base of that tube. All that tube does and all those vents do is put lower and lower frequencies out of phase with what's happening in front of the mic which goes straight in through the front of the tube and stays in phase. So just removing that whole concept from the mics you're recording with is, uh, is just going to be nothing but more straightforward, more helpful, more beneficial. He also echoed some of the points that Gordon Hempton made with regards to his use of his dummy head, which is when you're using omnis, you have to be even that much more aware of the environment in which you're recording. You have that much less latitude with regards to external noises and noise pollution and any kind of fouling of noise because you can't put the pollution basically in a dead spot of the mic because there are no dead spots. So you consequently have to do that much more front-end legwork to find yourself in a location to where you love everything you're hearing that's coming from every direction. So it's definitely more challenging in that way, but the results can be that much more rewarding. I asked Willem what kind of issues he has with regards to recording in stereo with omnis. And one of the things that I read a lot in the classical musical forums is there are phase issues that can happen more easily with multiple omnis up in the same space. 
that's definitely one of the things that I personally am going to put a priority on running some more tests on before I dive into any kind of big ambient field recordings. I need to figure out exactly how to set them up in ways that won't cause phase issues. So here's what Willem had to say about that. I wondered why wasn't everybody using uh, omnidirectional microphones? I've read Rick Fears' sound effects Bible, and why weren't omnidirectional microphones mentioned in the um, field recording kit that he describes? And the answer to that was uh, phase cancellation, crosstalk, with an XY stereo setup or, or an ORTF uh, setup or an, even an MS setup. You won't have that problem because there's a good separation between the left and the right channel that you are recording uh, with omnidirectionals you don't have a very clear separation between left and right because omnidirectional microphones record everything around them and they both do so they record the same audio at the same moment which gives you faint face problems and i'm not going to get very technical because i'm not right person to do that but phase cancellation is quite natural for us because we have two omnidirectional microphones so to speak in our ears so we are used to it so it doesn't have to be a problem all the time and it definitely isn't always quite sure if it is really a problem uh, i think a lot of people even don't notice it if they record in an with omnidirectional microphones but you have to check that and i do it uh, you can use a goniometer for that i think it's called to check the face of your stereo recording and you can always and i do that always you can always flip one um, stereo uh, track you can always flip the face and listen if it sounds better if it sounds better keep it like that if it doesn't sound better flip it back that's more or less uh, the only rule that i can give you for tackling this problem of course uh, like an xy stereo or ortf stereo or made with two um, cardioid um, uh, pencil microphones you do have some stereo configurations with omnidirectional microphones and the standard uh, one of them is the AB it means that you just put two omnidirectional microphones from a certain distance of each other the distance is it's, it's not specific it's something you can try out what sounds the best for you but you will definitely have face issues there and you have to be very careful with that now uh, there is also another way uh, in theory uh, that is the Jacqueline disc, which is uh, a disc, um, a circle made from um, an ab absorbent material that is placed between the two omnidirectional microphones. And that circle creates an acoustic shadow on each microphone and it absorbs especially not the high frequencies or the really low frequencies, but those frequencies where phase cancellation or, or crosstalk can become a problem so more in the, the, the middle of the frequency spectrum that we hear and that's the theory behind it actually it uh, definitely works better than the AB in my experience but there is a third way of creating a stereo configuration with omnidirectional microphones and that is not the Jacqueline disc, but the dummy hat. Uh, a few episodes ago, you had in Tone Banners Gordon Hampton as a guest. 
and he, it's his favorite way of recording um, nature and ambiences. But the dummy head uh, really blocks, of course, the sound between the two omnidirectional microphones, which is uh, uh, which is helpful for the face issue. Uh, but it creates also, it adds to the ambience because uh, with ears you have early f- reflections and you have a, a, a separation between the two microphones like we experience that in real life by listening to things. And that can give you a very natural, if you, if the, the, I think that's the, the best way of putting it, a very natural stereo image. And that stereo image is called uh, binaural uh, stereo. Uh, binaural stereo by using a head to block two omnidirectional microphones um, is used mostly as testing, uh, as as a testing microphone. For example, in cars to check if they're go- if they're good isolated against their um, engine, for example. Um, but like Gordon Hampton, you can use it too to record ambiences. And it's very fulfilling. It definitely helps in um, separating or in, in, the, in, the, in getting better stereo results uh, according to, to the face issue. But uh, I have to admit, it doesn't do that always, all the time. Uh, you always have to check the face before you... Um, proceed in mixing uh, your audio but it's easily uh, resolved if you flip the face of one track the left or the right uh, and that's most of the time exactly what helps you to uh, to make the stereo um, recording um, better without a face problem so it's really interesting information there for me and again it's one of the bigger concerns I have with regards to using quadraphonic mics with Omnis. I think a lot of the phasing issues happen because the actual physical lengths of the waveforms can be, say, a 40 or 50 hertz wave is going to be really, really long. But when you're talking about even you know a foot or two between mics, um, you're talking about a, a, a frequency length that is right there in the middle of your audible range. And so what's going to happen is, say something fires off to the left of the mics, it's going to hit that left omni, and then it's going to hit the right omni. And that frequency, the distance between the two mics, that frequency is going to be phase displaced when you put more than one omni up in a space. I completely understand the need for a Jekyll disc. And the thing that I would love to learn how to do and the thing that I'm going to have to practice and experiment with personally is using more than even two omnis and dealing with the phase issues and getting those exactly right. The reason that XY doesn't deal with phase issues at all is because both of your capsules are basically coincident and they're not recording the same space. Um, You know, one's shooting left and one's shooting right. And the same is true with ORTF. Again, you have mic shadows, you have null points that are aimed at the other mic's capsules in a lot of cases. With Omnis, you just don't have that luxury, and so you do have a lot more phase issues to deal with so really interesting thoughts there Uh, you know the fact that you always have to be checking phase and flipping polarity on things is uh it's another step but it's probably worth it one of the first things that willem showed me when he emailed me was this amazing dummy head that he created on the cheap and that's and that's why i wanted to have him um, do a little q a and and 
and and kind of describe the process he went through. So, and we'll have photography of of his dummy head up on the site. And here's his overall overview of how he conceived of and executed his own DIY dummy head. I constructed a dummy head as a means of a stereo configuration for my omnidirectional microphones. Um, I had the hat from a, a hat shop, <laughs> which was a gift. So I don't know what what it uh, what it costs. Um, it was secondhand. It was a little bit. Um, uh, it, I, it was not uh, perfect anymore. It's a polystyrene uh, hat. So um, I carved out some space on the place of where the ears should be. I ordered some uh, silicon acupuncture ears on the internet. Uh, it was a German web, sho- web shop, I think. Um, and I fitted them uh, onto the head, uh, the polystyrene head. Um, I fixed them with, uh, I think it's called in the US, uh, blue tech. Um, here we call it uh, poster dummies. It's a, a, a white gum that you can stick onto. Um, the walls to fix uh, posters. Um, I used the whole package of it just to fit them because glue wouldn't help me. Silicon onto polystyrene doesn't uh, work with normal glue and the glue eats the polystyrene away. So um, that wasn't ideal. Now to finish my head, I put, um, uh, uh, I made a hole uh, uh, under the, the neck of, of the, he- uh, the head. Um, I made a hole and I put a thread inside it so that it that I could fix the head on top of a normal microphone stand. And um, to hide my carvings and my um, uh, blue tech or poster dummies um, DIY stuff, um, I put some old panties uh, around the head. Um, it were old panties of, of from my wife. It's actually pantyhose. Um, and I, it, it, it helped in absorbing, I think, um, frequencies. So it makes the head a little bit more absorbent. I hope so. I put them two times. I think I wrapped the head in, with those panties and made a, a knot on top of the head, so that it, uh, yeah, that it was fixed and it looked a little bit better. Um, I didn't have the chance to use it a lot, uh, like I told you, but um, I fixed the microphones um, inside the ears that I uh, attached to the head. Uh, I used some magnets and some coins that I put on both sides of the panty. And like that, I could easily attach the DPA4060 inside uh, the, the oracle. Uh, on the place where you um, uh, where the ear canal uh, should start, so it's quite a truthful binaural setup. So a couple little things for me to help translate there. It sounds like he's saying hat the whole time, and he's he's saying head. Um, basically, he got a styrofoam wig holder, and it's just like a wig stand that you can get. And you can just order those online, and they're they're dirt cheap. I found some other ones that, as I was looking on it, were even probably a little sturdier than just a styrofoam head. But he found a styrofoam one, and then he did something that I would have never thought of. He found silicone ears that you can buy for like 50 bucks on eBay that acupuncturists use to practice with. 
they're like perfect human silicone ears that are the right, they're a little big, but that's actually okay. And they're the right shape and they're the right texture. And he took those and mounted them on the styrofoam wig holder. He also said his wife's panties, it's, uh, it's actually pantyhose. So it looks like a looks like a little robber, you know. It looks like a mugger with a with a pantyhose over his face with a <laughs> with the knot on the top and the ears sticking out. But given the fact that you can get all of the materials for that for about a hundred bucks or even a little under a hundred bucks, it was pretty impressive. And I thought it was very um, intuitive of him to come up with those various parts and pieces to make what ends up being a bona fide legit dummy head that costs one one hundredth of the one that you could get from Neumann. You know, the photography is, it really kind of illustrates everything that he put together. But when I did just a little product search for it, I was shocked at the price point of what he could do. I'll play a little bit of, he's got a long binaural test here, um, which is kind of typical of how binaural tests work. But I'll I'll show you a little bit of what he was able to, to record with dummy head. To give you an impression of what a dummy head sounds like, I'll do a quick test. I'm right now standing in my kitchen. So it's a highly reflective uh, space, like you can hear. It has tiles, it has a big window. Uh, it has MDF wood with a plastic covering on top of it. And it's uh, something of a square, more or less, uh, three meters, 50 centimeters, or that must be uh, 11 feet. Feet, sorry, I looked that up. Um, and you probably can hear the occasional police siren or even a plane passing by. But it's to demonstrate the speciality of what a dummy head in a stereo configuration can sound like. Okay, I'm now going to walk around the head. Um, it would be a good idea to put up on some headphones to have the maximum binaural stereo experience. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk right now to the left of you. So you'll be hearing now a shift in the stereo image and right now I'm standing right uh, at the left of you. Um, I'm going now to walk to behind you. So right now I am standing behind the dummy head. I'm going to walk a little bit further to the left of the dummy head. And right now I'm just, uh, sorry, in the right of the dummy head. And right now I'm just in front of the right side of the dummy head. And I'm going to walk back to the front of the dummy head. Here you go. I'm back where I started. Um, okay, let's repeat this, what I just did, uh, in the same order, but with something that I found here in my kitchen. Um, it's a kitchen alarm clock, uh, which sounds quite analog. Uh, here we go. Okay, well, I hope this demonstrates pretty well what a dummy head sounds like and I hope it uh, demonstrates the speciality of this room.
So that's the idea there. If you were listening to this in headphones, you got the full effect, and I just definitely heard it where he walks all the way around your head. And uh, that's that's how binaural recording works. Um, on its own, that behind-your-head effect, I don't know how super useful that is in, in most contexts, but... But just kind of generically as a uh, as an ambience recording where maybe you're not tracking things moving around, um, there's no doubt it, it hears the whole world and it hears it the right way. Given that we're going to be using these outside and using dummy heads outside, my other big concern is wind protection. So I asked Willem how he was handling that. Well, I'm handling wind protection with the wind jammer that is also made by DPA for their microphones. It's fine, it, it works. I don't think it's the same quality as you would have with a blimp, for example, or a Zeppelin, that's how we call it here in Europe, I think. Um, it's not of the same quality, but it, it works fine. And with a dummy head, you have also an advantage because your microphones are inside ears. So they, the ears block the wind also a little bit. So, so that, that helps. I think that's probably a, a little bit limited with regards to the type of wind you can be out in. I bet if you're dealing with any kind of gusty, windy day at all, you may have a real hard time of it. Something that could probably be a little bit workable would be to, say, take the end caps of a Rycote blimp and maybe fashion them out around the edges of the ear and see if see what that does to it. Something like that might, might actually work just fine in a situation like that. The other thing that you can do is instead of mounting the mics on the dummy head, you can mount them on your own head and go do stealth recording. Yes, I use omnidirectional microphones as a, a stealth rig. Um, the DPA 4060 are so small, so you can easily hide them. And how I did that is uh, I, I broke a cheap uh, earphone. You have earbuds with a hook that you can uh, uh, find cheap in, in a store somewhere. They're, 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 they're completely not expensive. You don't buy them for the... the uh, the, the headphone quality, you just tear it apart, but you only use that hook that comes with it. Um, and that hook you use to put your DPAs on their spot, and that is in front of your ear canal. And um, you attach the cable of the DPAs, of the microphones, uh, to the hook. I use tape to do that so that I can easily remove them back again. And like that, you put the microphones actually inside your ears, uh, you walk around and it, uh, it's, it's satisfying because nobody's going to ask you what are you doing. If you walk around in a city like Brussels with a blimp, you definitely get a lot of uh, eye contact and a lot of uh, looks from other people. And if you want, for example, like I did last year, record in a post office where I took all the efforts to um, write emails, to have permission to do that. But on the spot, uh, still you have people in charge that can make life difficult for you. And it's not going to go in details here, but it wasn't that satisfying experience. Right now, with those stealth rig, I just could walk that post office in. Nobody would notice that I'm recording. And I would have a natural ambience of that post office, for example, which is a whole lot more satisfying than doing all the effort to get inside with a big stereo microphone on a stand, only to be given five minutes or something like that and write that at that moment. There are a lot of buses who pass, so 
you really don't have the natural atmosphere. And with uh, the DPAs in my ears, I just can sit down like everybody else and record what's happening without getting any questions or without the need to ask for permission. Oh yeah, and there is one thing I should mention if you use um, microphones in your ears. Um, you have to be very quiet. Uh, use uh, What I always do is use comfortable shoes who have war flat, no heels, uh, no leather shoes. Um, that doesn't work. Uh, you have to wear silent clothes. Um, uh, you have those polyester uh, jackets. They make an uh, awful lot of noise and that doesn't help if you're walking around uh, with your microphones. So wear silent clothes. And make sure you don't have a cold, for example, so that you're not breathing too heavily or have to sneeze every minute because that doesn't help. You have to remember that uh, you are the microphone stand, uh, which isn't very comfortable, but that's the trade-off for, uh, for getting unnoticed. To some degree, that's the case no matter how you're recording, but I think it's just super amplified when, yeah, when you are the microphone stand and you are actually physically attached to the mics your clothing your physical state your breathing all of that is even that much more important to be aware of and to minimize the noise it makes so i asked willem for any final thoughts he had on binaural recording binaural recording uh, is something i like because it gives me a wider stereo perspective like i said it gives you a perspective uh, like chad blake uh, calls it an, like looking through a fishbowl which is a wider perspective before I was always trying to um, do away with uh, reverberant places or sounds that, that you accidentally have when you try to record. And with a dummy head, I found myself just looking to finding a good balance between the place, the location where you are recording and the subject or what you try to record. And that's something I feel it's more truthful to the subject that I try to record. I like that a lot. I think I'm getting better and it gives me a new direction in my field recording. And I'm not so scared anymore of um, there is something happening and uh, I have to uh, uh, get away with it. No, it's, it's, it, it gives me a more um, natural, holistic maybe approach to recording. So the whole binaural vibe really does give you a sense of space. It gives you a sense of location. It's really good for those kind of broader layers. And he sent me some recordings of some marble stairways. In my personal opinion, I think spaced omni, binaural, that type of recording is really good for sound designers who need a nice steady bass layer with regards to ambiences and BGFX, on top of which they can even cut more mono effects that are panned around and that type of thing. The omni vibe really does get reflections just right. It gets low end just right. It gets perspective just right. Um, and I can't wait to start using it more. So thanks to Willem for really, you know, putting out the effort to a dream up the dummy head because that was amazing and spend his time with us and talk about 
the way that he's using Omnis to record ambiences. It's definitely something that I'm going to be experimenting a lot more with in the near future, and, uh, and I can't wait to get started. Thanks for everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Willem Sannon for contributing his segment today. Uh, you can follow the show at The Tone Benders and go to ToneBenders.net to leave a comment. Also check us out at Facebook.com slash ToneBendersPodcast. See you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Turnbenders. Find us online at ToneBenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the Turnbenders or email us at dc, timothy or renee at turnbenders.net. 